I believe in God's providence and by his grace he's given us this text um, to go through this week. We're going to talk about the marks of a good soldier, the marks of a good soldier of Christ. A soldier is someone who's in a battle, and in the battle, a soldier feels the bumps and bruises of diving into a foxhole and hears the bullets whizzing by his or his head. And, and, um, but a good soldier keeps getting up and keeps marching forward, and certainly a good soldier of Christ does so not in his own strength, but in the strength of Christ. There's a, an amazing story, one of, the, one of the great heroic stories that has come out of World War II, um, a guy named Audie Murphy. Who's heard of Audie Murphy? I'm sure there's lots of people, okay? Audie Murphy, this young man, I think he was 19, I heard, I, don't, I didn't verify this, but I'd heard that he lied about his age so that he could serve in the military. Um, he was a young man, he was a small man. He was five, five, 120 pounds. Um, he heroically saved the day when 200 German soldiers with six tanks overwhelmed his unit. One time he told his men, you guys go over to that tree line there and run for cover, and he jumped on a burning vehicle and fired a gun for an hour uh, and killed 50 Nazi soldiers. He, he later recalled that that day and, and as he was running, I think at one time he was, he was getting the communication line and trying to, get, trying to get fire overhead to cover them. And at one time, later on, he recalled that day and said he was thinking to himself as he's running from one place to another, how am I still alive? Shrapnel on his leg, alone holding off these Nazi soldiers. We love stories like that. And for good reason. Right? And more than, we, more than just loving stories like that, people want to follow someone like that. A man of courage who doesn't back away when the battle heats up. Someone who runs toward danger rather than away from danger. Someone who sacrifices himself for the service of others. Someone who lays his life down, whether figuratively or literally for the well-being of his friends. How much more should we as Christians, as followers of Christ, follow our leader and our commander who sacrificed himself by enduring the cross and despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God? And he did this in order to rescue us from the wrath of God. I think this, not Audie Murphy, but this picture of Christ as our commanding officer and we're called to follow him, I think this is in Paul's mind when he wrote this text. Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this. He was imprisoned by the Emperor Nero, a psychopath. Paul was near the end of his life and he seemed to know it. And so what does he do? He, among other things, writes this letter to encourage his young friend and protege, Timothy, to a life of courage and faithfulness to God. He calls Timothy to the life of a soldier of Jesus Christ. And he did this for a good reason. Timothy was experiencing intense 
opposition in Ephesus where he was called the pastor. Timothy was experiencing opposition from false teachers. Some of them, false teachers, were perhaps even at one time leaders in the church, and now they're opposing him and teaching false doctrine. He received, or he was experiencing opposition from apostates, those who once appeared to be faithful followers of Christ and had abandoned ship. He was experiencing opposition from persecutors, those who wanted to harm him and other Christians for their testimony and witness of Christ. And because of this opposition, Timothy, maybe like, if we're honest, maybe like we would be, he was tempted to cower in fear. Which is why Paul in chapter 1 verse 7 said, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Because of the opposition, Timothy was perhaps tempted to be ashamed to be embarrassed of the testimony of Christ. And Paul tells us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that, that the testimony of Jesus, a Savior that dies on a cross to save his people, is utterly foolish to the world, to those who are perishing, but to us it's the power of God. Perhaps Timothy was tempted to be ashamed of Christ. Timothy was perhaps tempted to be ashamed of his connection with Paul. Paul was in prison. Many others abandoned Paul. And so Paul exhorted Timothy in his temptation to be ashamed, said, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Chapter 1, verse 8. Timothy, perhaps tempted to shrink back due to his own weakness and cower from what God had called him to do, was encouraged by Timothy in the first verse of our text this morning, verse 1, where Paul says, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And this is the key. This is the key to enduring. This is the key to enduring as a soldier of Christ. Be strengthened by grace. Divine grace. And we talk about giving grace to people. Like if I give grace to someone, I kind of overlook, you know, something they've done or whatever. We're not talking about that kind of grace. This is divine grace. Paul says, be strengthened, Timothy, by the grace of God that is found in Christ. God's grace is not just pardon for sin. It is that. Praise God. But it's not just pardon for sin, it is also power for living. God's grace is his constant, never-ending, gracious disposition toward us. And this grace is in Christ. Do you know what that means? That God is constantly, without fail, gracious toward his children because they're in Christ. Do you know what this means? That God, without fail, if you are a believer in Christ, without fail, God is 100% for you. 
Not 99%, not 99.9%, but 100% for you, now and forever. And if you belong to Christ, that will never change. Think about the, the strength and encouragement that gives us to live lives of faithfulness, especially when things are hard. Now, this grace that is found in Christ by which we are strengthened, it's not, God does not give you grace, he does not give you this grace because you are so amazing. Maybe someone would hear what I'm saying and said, I, I knew that God thought I was awesome. But that's not why. He gives you this grace in Christ. Because of Christ. This is meant to strengthen us. And strengthened by this grace, Paul calls Timothy. Timothy's a pastor. So this is certainly a call to pastors, but I think there's a general call here to all faithful Christians. Paul calls Timothy, Paul calls us to be a good soldier of Christ. Verse three of our text says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. A good soldier, not merely a soldier, right? Someone who is in the military could be dishonorably discharged for dishonorable conduct, and if so, that person would not be a soldier at all. But it's conceivable that someone could be in the military and not be dishonorably discharged and still not be considered a good, excellent soldier. We are called to be good soldiers. Some synonyms, this this word can, can carry the meaning of honorable or excellent. That's what God is calling us to be. So Paul commands Timothy and you and I to be good soldiers. And so with the remaining time, I just want to unpack from these, these verses five marks of a good soldier. Five marks of a good soldier. First, a good soldier is willing to suffer. A good soldier is willing to to suffer. Verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So you see that connection there? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. The first mark of a good soldier is a willingness to suffer. The phrase to share in suffering literally means to suffer hardship along with someone else. And I think what's the idea that's carried here is that we are called to be good soldiers who suffer with the other soldiers on the battlefield. In the New American Standard Bible, it adds the words, with me. In other words, Paul is saying, Timothy, share in suffering with me. And he says almost the same thing in chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel, or share in suffering with me for the gospel by the power of God. Paul, who is in prison, is calling Timothy to join him and share in his experience of suffering for Christ and for his truth. Now, of course, this is, Paul was not encouraging Timothy, nor are we encouraged to look for opportunities to suffer, right? That would be silly. 
but it is most certainly calling us to choose the path of suffering. If there's a fork in the road and one path is faithfulness that leads to suffering and the other path is cowardice that leads to ease and comfort. We are to choose the path of faithfulness, even if it means being made fun of or mocked or whatever. Choose the path of suffering for Christ and for his truth. That's what a good soldier does. If we are faithful to Christ and pursue godliness, listen, there will be plenty of opportunities to suffer for Jesus. Paul makes this clear. We're going to talk about it in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, where Paul says, For whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ, doesn't say may, doesn't say should, it says will suffer persecution. And when we suffer in the path of obedience, whether it's slander or mocking or worse, we need to remember that we are joining with a throng of saints, both in the present and in the past, who have or or are suffering for Christ. One thing I thought of when I was studying for this was Hebrews chapter 11 and going into chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11 is the the chapter of the faithful who have gone before us. Remember at at the beginning of chapter 12, this great cloud of witnesses, these men and women of God who are faithful and many of them were faithful to the point of giving up their lives for their faithfulness to God. And at the beginning of chapter 12, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race with endurance looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. And then verse four says, consider him who endured such hostility from evil men that you may not grow faint-hearted or weary. This great cloud of witnesses who have, they've gone before us. Obviously that that cloud of witnesses is bigger now that we're 2,000 years after it was written in Hebrews 12. These men and women, we look, we're inspired by them, we're strengthened by them. And in some spiritual sense, we join with them in their suffering for God and Christ. A good soldier is willing to suffer. Number two, a good soldier is on duty at all times. A good soldier is on duty at all times. Verse four, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Again, the New American Standard, I think, adds a couple words. The translators wanted to help explain this a bit more, and I think it's helpful. It says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. A good soldier is never on leave, is never AWOL. His assignment might change, no doubt. Right? There are times when a soldier rests, but he is called to active duty at all times. Which means, some of you might be thinking, 
wait, what about, let me, let me say that, which means that you must not see your vocation, your, your nine to five job throughout the week, or menial, what, what, what might appear to be menial tasks like changing diapers and doing the dishes and mowing the yard and shoveling the sidewalk and teaching your children. These things are not inconsistent with the life of a faithful soldier. No, don't think like that. One might read verse four and think, well, I've got to quit my job and go to full-time ministry to do this. Or someone might think, well, I probably can't be all in until my kids are grown up and out of the house. Because there's just a lot day to day, isn't there? If you have a family, if, you're, if you have a nine to five job, there's a lot day to day that you are given to. I think the key word here is the word entangled. A good soldier is not tied up in knots and so interwoven in worldly affairs that it prohibits him or her from faithful service to Christ. I think of the, the parable of the sower. When Jesus tells this parable and he says, seed is thrown on the, the path and the bird comes and snatches it. Seed is sown um, in shallow, rocky ground and it grows quickly and then it withers and dies when the, when the sun comes out. And then see, some seed is sown among the thorns. And when he explained the parable, he said the thorns represent or symbolize the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Of course, this means that there may be certain jobs or hobbies, things you might feel like you want to give yourself to that would be off limits if it keeps you from being a faithful soldier of Christ. No doubt. And soldiers of Christ want to know, Lord, everything's on the table, Jesus, right? We want to be faithful in all things. Positively, the point is, I think, that you are to see all that you do as part of advancing the cause and kingdom of Christ. Engage in the spiritual battle of the ages, Listen, when a man enlists in the United States Army, all that he is belongs to the Army, right? His body, his time, his skills, his effort, his health, everything. Even more, as soldiers of Christ, we are called to be soldiers 24 hours a day because all that we are and all that we have now belong to him. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that? All that you are, all that you have now belongs to Christ. Romans 14, 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I mean, in life and death, we now belong to him. Listen, we've been purchased, we've been bought with a price, not gold or silver, but the precious blood of Jesus. We belong to him now. And all that we have and all that we are now is his. And we're called 
to think that way and live that way as good soldiers. Now, you might be wondering, though, how does this actually work? Is this just kind of nice abstract thoughts, okay? No, this is meant to impact us on the ground. So let me give some examples, okay? We could give many examples and an entire message could be given on how this plays out. But let me just give you a few examples on how this works. Mothers, is there ever a time in which you are not to be nurturing and watching over the souls of your dear children? No, of course not. Always. Whether you might be sitting on the beach sometime, but they're in your mind, right? They're, they're on your heart, no doubt. You might be working, you might be sleeping, but in, the mo- in an instant, in the middle of the night, if one of your children needs you, you're there. That's what mothers do. Godly mothers. Fathers and husbands, is there ever a time in which you are not to be leading and guarding and protecting and providing for your family, spiritually and otherwise? Of course not. That's what, that's what men, fathers, husbands are called to. Beloved church, entire church, is there ever a time in which you are to be at rest, completely unconcerned for your unbelieving friends, parents, children, neighbors, co-workers? No. Is there ever a time in which you are to be indifferent about, your lo- about loving your brothers and sisters in the church and caring for their needs and bearing their burdens? No, this is something we're always to be giving ourselves to. Is there ever a time in which you should not be watchful or vigilant over your own soul? Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard with vigilance? That sounds like soldier language, doesn't it? Guard it. Can we sit idly by when false teachers ravage the church, when straying friends are walking away from Christ, and when a, when a bloated, teetering on tyrannical government lusts for more authority to tell us when and how we can worship. No. If we are to be soldiers of Christ, we must be good soldiers of Christ. And as good soldiers, we must be on active duty at all times against the spiritual forces of evil. Listen to Charles Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse. He said, The Christian is a soldier in an enemy's country, always needing to stand on his watchtower, constantly to be contending, though not with flesh and blood, with far worse foes, with spiritual wickedness in high places. A good soldier, brothers and sisters, is always on duty. Number three, A good soldier's aim is to please his commanding officer. That's what he wants more than anything. Verse 4, again, Paul says, No soldier entangles himself in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
Right? A good soldier wants to please the one who enlisted him. And as soldiers of Christ, who has enlisted us? It is Christ himself. That's the chief aim of a soldier. He's not mostly concerned with other duties that have not been assigned to him. The one who calls to service, listen, also calls the shot. Shots, I should say. And the good soldier is perfectly fine with that. I remember listening to a, uh, I believe he was a drill sergeant. <clears throat> and he said, you know, when, uh, when a new soldier comes into boot camp, they drill into them obedience, strict obedience to the letter. Even when it comes to folding a shirt and how to make a bed. Not because that is so massively important, but it's important that a soldier understands how to take orders on the battlefield and doesn't decide, well, I wonder if I can do this a little differently than my, my captain says. No. Whatever station Christ has you in, your aim should be to please him and to glorify him in all things. Listen to how Paul talks in Acts chapter 20. I, I love Acts 20, 24. This is an amazing verse. And, and I, I wish, I pray that this could be placarded on our hearts. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Of course, Paul had a unique ministry. He was an apostle. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. But if, if we could have that mindset, all I want to do is finish my course faithfully to please my Lord. Paul said his aim was not to live as long as he possibly could or to make a bucket list of exciting adventures to complete before he died. Listen, if you live to 95 and you get to do some exciting things, praise God, but that can't be the goal. Paul's aim and our aim should be to please Christ in everything. In his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul says, so whether we are at home, which what he means by it in context, he means whether we're in the body, alive in the body, or away from the body, in other words, dead and with the Lord, we make it our aim to please him. This really is, I think, such an important thing for us to consider. Who are you aiming to please in life? Who are you aiming to please in life? For many, quite frankly, it goes no further than the person that stares back at them in the mirror. For others, called people pleasers, their main aim is to please others, to get others to like them and praise them so they live to please others. The good soldier's chief desire is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good soldier wants to, nothing more than to hear his commanding officer say to him, well done, good and faithful soldier, good and faithful servant. Soldier too. You've been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. J.C. Ryle, in a sermon, describes the, the zealous Christian as one who only sees one thing 
and cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He's swallowed up by one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Now listen, if you give yourself to please God with this zeal, believe me, the people you love and are called to serve, your family, your church family, they will be massively blessed. Don't think, well, if I give myself fully to to Christ like this, what about the other people I'm called to serve? No, you serve them through your commitment to Christ and your desire to please him. A good soldier aims at pleasing his commanding officer. Number four, a good soldier is bent on winning. Paul changes the metaphor to that of an athlete when he says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In the battle we are called to take part in, whether it's battle against, whether we want to think of it more of a, in a micro sense, like the battle against our own sin, or we turn outward in the battle in the church and even beyond that, we are not ordered to simply take up space or take part in a losing expedition. We're called to the battlefield by our king and we're called to take ground for him. So World War II, if you know the dates or even kind of an idea of of what happened, June 6, 1944 was D-Day, okay? It was when the, the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and that invasion essentially broke the back of the Nazis. But the war wasn't over for 11 more months. May 8th, or May, I think May 8th, 1945, was Victory in Europe Day. The, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, where he came, he lived a perfect life, he died an atoning death, he rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father's right hand. That's like in a sense, like D-Day, right? The decisive victory. And yet, Christ, when he comes again, will consummate our salvation, which is like victory in Europe Day. And we are in that time in between. The cross and resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Christ, the victory is sure, and therefore we are to fight in order to take part in that victory. Like an athlete who trains and competes in order to be crowned. Paul develops this metaphor, this metaphor of an athlete competing uh, more in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. Listen to what he says. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Obtain what? The prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. We are to run that we may win. We are to fight as a soldier in Christ's army so that we may obtain the victory, expectant of victory. And here's how I think one of the the clearest ways that I think we need to understand this. In our present and continuing battle against 
indwelling sin? Do you expect to have victory? You should. Christ died to give it to you. Now, I'm not saying perfection. I don't think we get that in this life. But are you expecting to triumph over that lust that you give yourself to? Are you like, well, you know, that's just, that's just something I've always struggled with or that bad temper or whatever. We are to live cognizant of the victory of Christ and filled with hope of the consummation of that victory when he comes again. We know that in the end, death itself, the last enemy, is going to be swallowed up in Christ's victory. And so we compete as athletes in order to be crowned. We fight as soldiers in order to win. Again, Charles Spurgeon said the following on this verse. He said, A good soldier, if he is indeed a first-class soldier, worthy of the service to conquer will be his ruling passion. The fight is on and the soldier's blood is up and now he feels, I must drive the enemy from his entrenchment. I must take yonder fortification. I must plant our conquering standard on the castle of the foe or I must die. I love that. We're going to take ground. We're going to push the enemy back. And I'm not saying in some massive triumphalistic sort of way. I'm just saying, listen, where we see that the enemy needs to be fought, whether it's in the own corruptions of our own heart or in our family or in our church or beyond, we are going to be good soldiers, expectant of victory. Number five, a good soldier is patient. Paul uses another metaphor, that of a farmer in verse 6. He said, It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Farming is a hard vocation. And to be a farmer back in the first century, no doubt, was harder than it is now. Seemingly endless toil of preparing the ground, plowing it up, and sowing seeds, and picking weeds, and making sure that the seeds get enough water and harvesting the crops. The farmer had to be hard working. And the farmer also had to be patient. Similarly, good soldiers need to be hard working, unafraid to get our hands dirty, and we need to be patient. We understand it's a war of attrition that we're in. It is a war that, is, that is, has been going on for a long time and will go on probably after we're dead, unless Christ returns. The ground taken may be slow, whether in our own hearts or in our own home, with our own children or in our church and so forth. May, may seem slow, like a plant that grows slowly, even imperceptibly to the naked eye, and yet the plant grows inevitably. The farmer goes out day to day. He doesn't physically see the plant grow, but he knows that the plants are growing because lo and behold, before long, he sees something sprout up out of the ground. A little bit longer, something gets bigger. And then it's bigger, and before long, the harvest comes. 
we are called as soldiers to be patient, to plant, to water, to pull weeds. And much of the fruit of our labors, I'm convinced, we may not even see in our lifetime. And actually, I'm encouraged by that. We, we, want, we want to be part of something that outlasts us, don't we? In our family. We don't want to be like, okay, mom and dad died, everyone walks away from Jesus. It's like, oh no. We want to be part of something that, that outlasts us. This calls for patience. I remember, uh, Alyssa's not here, I was going to point to her, but um, probably eight years ago, Alyssa and I had several uh, kids from, refugee kids from Des Moines over to our home. Um, And one young man, I believe his name was Peter, but I I, I was going to ask Alyssa, I think his name was Peter, was there. He had one parent that was from India, and the other parent was from Myanmar, or previously called Burma. Um, and they met, I can't remember, maybe in India. Anyways, they got married. He's, he's their child. And when I heard that he, one of his parents was from Myanmar, I was like, oh, wow. Adoniram Judson. Right? Burma. I said, have you ever heard of Adoniram Judson? And he kind of looked like, hmm, have I heard of that? He's like, oh, Papa Judson? I was like, probably, I don't know, I think so. And I told him, you know, he, he told, told me, the, I told him the story of Adoniram Judson. Yeah, absolutely, we call him Papa Judson. Adoniram Judson, a, an American missionary, Baptist missionary, went to Burma in the mid-1800s, and there was no Christian there. He went there, I believe with the wife, anyways, he had a couple, couple wives die while he was there, Five or six kids die. He labored without any visible fruit for years. I think his first convert was like seven years after he was there. Translated the Bible into the, into the Burmese language. And get this, now there are something like three million Christians in Myanmar. It's amazing. And this young man, Peter, became a believer because of the labor of this amazing soldier of Christ, Adnaram Judson, who like a farmer was like, I'm just gonna plant, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pull weeds, I'm gonna do the hard labor, and he died and didn't see a whole lot of the fruit of it. Hebrews 6.12 tells us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Praise the Lord that you and I are not alone in this. We're not like Rambo. Some of you young kids are like, who's Rambo? Okay, if you're old, like my age, Rambo was like this one-man army. He just took out entire opposing armies. We're not like that. We are a band of soldiers, brothers and sisters, called to march together following our captain, Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you, are you a soldier of Christ? Is that the path you're on? Actually, let me let me let me let you, uh, let me let Isaac Watts ask you this. He wrote a song called "Am I a Soldier of the Cross?" Here's what it says: Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? 
And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me onto God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by his word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that our answer to these questions would be with humility and with a heart that seeks, says, Lord, I need your help, but yes, I'm a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb.